Hello and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. My guest today is Ian Thomas, and he has won dozens of local and international awards for his creativity and is one of the world's most popular writers and poets. His prose and poetry appears on monuments and in university collections, has been quoted by everyone from Steven Spielberg to Ariana Huffington, is regularly tattooed on people, and has been read in front of the British royal family. He is an international number one best-selling creator and author of numerous books and creative projects with millions of fans and readers across the globe. He regularly travels the world to attend literary festivals and conferences, but when he isn't, he lives in Cape Town, South Africa with his family. So, Ian, thanks so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I love when we met. It was in, uh, at a book fair, actually, down in Sharjah <laughs> on yes. a desert yes. safari. In the desert. That was a lot of fun, Lis- listening to, to hard techno as we, as we drove through the sand dunes. <laughs> yeah, the sand dunes and, uh, and then had a big, um, big dinner out there underneath the stars and, and went stargazing. That was, uh, that, was, that was very memorable. I was curious if any poems rose from that experience. Oh, now you are putting me on the spot. No, um, no. I <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, I think at, at that time, um, I wasn't, I don't know. I think I was just missing my family, you know? Oh, and sure, so, yeah. And so, and so as, as, as amazing, you know, as, as, it, as it was, um, a lot of my kind of emotional, you know, space was taken up by being away from my from my kids. As I, as I was saying uh, to you, you know, my my son is you know, is eleven months old now. My daughter is three years old, and so even though I get to go and do all these amazing things, I think they're a lot more fun um, when you don't have to worry about your kids and you you know your your wife is handling it, you know, um, okay on her own and everything. No, absolutely, so, no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. At least you have a memory now that you'll be able to tap into once the, um, you know, uh, <laughs> once you catch up to the emotional space that you need to. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was really cool. I, I showed my daughter pictures of the sand dunes and, you know, and, and the architecture around Sharjah. And and, um, and she, she asked me, did you meet Aladdin? Oh, fun. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's so a I did perfect that. question for her. Yeah, I did the good dad thing. I lied and I said yes. I met him and I met Jasmine, and they they send their love. And yeah, <laughs> did her eyes? I bet her eyes lit up when you said yeah. That. No, she's in. A, she's at a very. She's in a very magical age age right now. I, and yeah, you know, I think I end up writing quite a bit about them right now. I'm, you know, I've been writing poetry since uh, since I was a kid, and I've kind of gone through these different phases. Sure. And. Um, you know, I think when I was a teenager, I was quite an angry young man. And then in my 20s, I had all these different relationships. And so a lot of my poetry, um, especially my most famous book, uh, I wrote this for you, revolved around relationships and falling out of relationships and love and and all of those different kind of very human emotions. But, you know, now I'm, I'm going to hit 40 in about a year and uh, I've got these two kids and they become the kind of, you know, cosmic fire that drives me and that um, pushes me forward, which is a which is a strange place to be in. There's a, there's a very strange burden on poetry that I don't think other art forms have, which is that p- 
people expect poetry to be true. They it ha- they believe that when the poet is writing about it, it comes from this real experience. And so you feel like you're betraying them if you're not true to, to what you're actually going through and what you're living through. You know, when I was, uh, I have a master's degree in uh, storytelling. And many years ago when I was studying for that, I was looking at the difference between fiction and nonfiction. And, um, you know, no, well, poetry is considered nonfiction. And I was surprised yeah. at the time because I thought, well, poems are clearly made up. But then, like what you just said, is people do have this expectation that there is truth behind the uh, experience that the poet is uh, is writing about. So that's fascinating. Yeah. It is fascinating. And it's um it's also dangerous, I think, to to a lot of poets, and, and why poets tend to have these kinds of kinds of very melancholic, romantic kind of uh, boxes that they get put into because they're creative and they're drawing on this um, well of creativity, and a lot of it comes from you know kind of angsty places. And then um, at some point they're 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 in a situation where they go, well, I'm expected to write more of this, and maybe I should be in a darker place than I really ah, am. Yes. And so they end up almost embracing this kind of very dark side of themselves. And it's, uh, it's really unhealthy. I've, I found myself in a, in a similar place a few years ago where I had this kind of conversation with myself where I thought that, um, cause I was, I was struggling with, a, with, with some depression at the time. And I thought, you know, potentially my depression is essential to my creative process. And it, it took a while and I, wor- I worked through it and I realized, you know, like, ultimately, you are a creative person, whether you're depressed or not depressed. Sure. You, know, you, you simply are. That's the way that your brain works. And I was able to let go of that. And, you know, I also discovered after going through a lot of my work that um, my most popular work, my my most like profound work that resonated with people across the world came from a very happy, healthy place. And I think, you know, sadness and, and, and melancholy are very productive emotions and they can make you write a lot of stuff and you can sit there for hours just banging away at your keyboard, kind of working through those emotions. But the most beautiful, heartfelt things actually come from a really healthy place. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. And I love how you said that, you know, poetry is speaking the truth about the world. And, you know, I, I feel like the same is in a sense, true about fiction, but not the truth of experience, but the truth of the human experience in the sense that when when I write fiction, I really try to embrace and tell the truth uh, as far as that it's a glorious world and it's a it's a terrible world, that it's an amazing place that love and self-sacrifice and mercy are, are inspiring. But also this is a world where, you know, terrorists you know, live and bomb themselves and, and others. And so there's this paradox to the human experience. And so so when you talk about, you know, writing from a dark place and also writing from, you know, more of an inspiring place, I feel like you're touching on, on all of the human experience, but maybe just at different moments in your life. I think that's, that, that's effectively it. Uh, I think poetry... Good poetry speaks to some kind of universal human truth, or maybe yeah. not good good poetry, but the poetry that I like or the poetry sure. that I try to write. Um, 
when I when I was growing up, we were one of the the very few households in South Africa at the time to have a, an internet connection. And my my brother was very fascinated with the, the actual technology of it, like how you know, do these computers talk to each other? And he became a, a programmer and a coder and it was a very left brain person. But I was always fascinated um, almost by what I would call the spiritual side of it, where it was just strangers talking to strangers. And back then, it wasn't like it is now where everyone has to be on the internet. The only people on the internet were people who really wanted to be on the internet, who had to sure. go through the, the hassle of learning how to use a modem and paying for it and, and, and going through the, the, the process of doing that. And back then, a lot of people were, were just going online for the sake of talking to strangers. You would just go into a chat room or a bulletin board or whatever it was at the time. And I was always fascinated by that, by, talking to somebody and not knowing anything about them and then trying to find some kind of common ground. And my, my first big project, I wrote this for you, came out of that, um, where the you, the pronoun in that is almost a, it's the universal you. And I, when I sat down to write that, I, I sat down and I said, I will never use a, a gendered pronoun. I will never mention someone's age, race, or location. I will write every single one of these poems purely about the reader and try and write about very universal things. And, and yeah, I mean, I think people, you know, people need fiction, people need poetry. And I think maybe they serve different purposes in some way. I think, cause I love fiction. If I had my way, I would have been a fiction writer. I, I would have been Lee Child or, <laughs> or, 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 or Stephen King or, um, but when I, when I put my hands down on the keyboard, what comes out is, is poetry. But what I, I love about them is the escapism, is the the world in which the bad guys lose. You know, I, I, I like you know, that, I, yeah. I, I live in South Africa. And so, you know, there's there's a lot of corruption. There's a lot of daily kind of uh, frustration where you look around and you go, well, you know, the bad guys don't always lose. And um, and and so there's that wonderful kind of escapism uh that fiction provides you whereas poetry i think is almost more about being recognized and being seen mm, and i suppose that's where that's where the pressure of of it being non-fiction comes from and you know people will read something and they will feel like it was written specifically for them and they've been recognized and they they've they've had something they've gone through a breakup they're they're you know they're their dog has died or they've lost their job or, you know, they just want to know that the struggle that they go through daily is worthwhile. And, and a poem can lift somebody up and say, I too have experienced this thing. And wherever you are in the world right now, you're not alone in that experience. And I think, you know, it's, that's the fundamental thing I get out of it when I write poetry is I do not feel as alone with the things that I'm feeling. And I think that's what my readers get out of it. I hope that's it. Yeah, that's excellent. Um, when uh, when I wrote my latest uh, book, it's called um, Synapse, and it happens 30 mm. years in the future. There's a there's a robot, and the robot ends up writing poetry. And my heart goes out to you because that was difficult writing poetry, let alone from the perspective <laughs> of a robot. <laughs> so so I had to dabble in in the art form, and I enjoyed it, but it was it was difficult. I found found it's, uh, it's a it's yeah. in, it's interesting because there there was actually just an article I read the other day about these AIs that they're teaching to write poetry and some of it's not bad at all some of it's really good 
Huh. And I, I, I don't know. I think maybe, you know, I, I think poetry written by robots might one day have a place, but ultimately people listen to a Nirvana song because they know who Nirvana were and there, and there's a story behind the song. A machine could yeah. have written any, any of those songs, but ultimately you're buying into the substance and the story behind the song. If I know a Casio keyboard wrote the song, I don't care how good the song is. It might be incredible, but music and art, I think is much more about the substance behind it and the process that, that went into making it. We, we love a story behind mm -hmm. the things that we, that, that we enjoy and that we, that, that, that we consume. Um, but what I was going to say, I, I was speaking to a friend about it the other day, um, is I've started embracing technology to a degree in my process every now and again. And about once or twice a year, what I'll do is I'll go online and there are these, these things called text shufflers and college kids use them when they plagiarize an essay. So what they'll do <laughs> is they'll, they'll steal an essay from somewhere and they'll put it into this, this web page and the web page will shuffle all the sentences and throw in some synonyms here and there and kind of jumble it up. So if someone searches for it, it's not going to come back as the same essay. But what I'll do is every now and again, I'll feed my entire notebook into this thing and just randomize the entire thing because then I can look at it and I go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. The way that those two lines kind of work together or the way that, you know, these things kind of create this third thing, you know? Um, and so, yeah, I, I would love to pretend that I sit here with a typewriter and, uh, and some, you know, kind of just in the dark smoking a cigarette and <laughs> living a very poetic kind of lifestyle. But I write a lot of my stuff just in my notes app on my phone, I think. Yeah, that's that's great. Let's chat for a second about creativity in general. I know uh, you mentioned that you are a creative person, and clearly you are from from the life that you live and the rights, uh, writing that you've done. What if someone doesn't feel creative and they think, well, that's him. He's a poet, you know, and uh, but I'm I'm not very creative. What's sort of your response when people? I'm sure you run into people who say that. What? How do you how do you respond? Well, I think we're all creative. Um, I think that creativity is the opposite of fear. I think, you know, I worked in advertising for a very long time and I would sit with these very junior art directors and copywriters and brainstorms who would be completely quiet for the first like 30, 40 minutes because they were terrified of the thing that might come out their mouth. And if someone said it was a bad idea or criticized them for it. And so a lot of people a lot of people stop themselves because they think the things that they want to make aren't worth making or that they're silly. And they're, and the truth is we, we are all fundamentally creative. And if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, our self-expression is the kind of ultimate form of our lives. Mm. Like if we are self-expressing, if we're making things, if we're bringing something into this world from another place, I think that is when we are, we are our highest selves. And it's um, it's it's a tough life to live to live a life that is purely a creative life. I think I was a I was a barman for about uh, a year back in 1998, and that's the only time in my life my creativity hasn't paid my bills, whether it's been in advertising or through books or something else. And and it's it's you know it's a life that you 
you spend scratching lottery tickets effectively because you make all these different things. And it's not like, you know, that this one's going to be successful and the next one is, isn't going to be successful. You just take chances. You know, whenever I have to lecture to students, I, I say, I'm very aware that nine out of 10 things I do will fail, which is why I do 10 things, you know? Nice. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, it's a, I think the primary skill, I think no matter what you make, um, whether it's poetry or music or art, uh, visual art or anything like that is actually just listening. I spend most of my time listening because I think people have profound thoughts that they ignore. I think there's profound conversations that go on around you all the time. Then, and people say things that kind of have this magic to them. And if you train your ear to listen, then you can discover these incredible moments i was i was um i was in the the line at a coffee shop earlier on today and the woman in front of me was talking to her friend and she's and i caught the tail end of her conversation and she said i want to do more more with my life but i'm i'm just always tired mm. and there's something about just that moment of conversation that kind of contains the primary struggle of all mankind there's something beautiful just about those two sentences that I could turn into a poem and I might still turn into a poem at some point. Um, and so it's, it's about listening. If I, if I, if I think of something at two o'clock in the morning, I wake up and I write it down. If I, you know, if I'm sitting in traffic, I'll pull over and, and write something down that I've heard off the radio. And the more you train your ear, the more you hear. I like how you mentioned just a minute ago about how you feel that, uh, fear is our creativity is the opposite of fear and that people are, you know, afraid. Uh, I don't know if it's a failure or of looking silly or whatever, and that holds them back from being their creative self. That's that's fascinating. And I, I really like that idea of that they're opposites. And I feel that's true. I've never heard it put that way. But, um, you know, I think if you look at the creative process, any creative process is divided up into two distinct kinds of, of phases. And the first phase is chaotic and messy. And you have to be able to say whatever you want to say in that space. There's in, 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 in fiction, I understand, you know, your, your first draft is your first draft and you should just be able to write whatever you want in that first draft. And then you can get to the second draft and you can start to refine. And in any kind of creative process, it's the same kind of thing. You have this very messy, what you might call brave part. And the second aspect of it is a cold, clinical, critical, editorial phase where you look at everything and everything that does not add to the idea is taken away. And so, but if you don't have the comfort and the bravery to go into that first phase, then you've got nothing. If you, if your entire creative process is spent being afraid where you're writing a sentence and then immediately editing it, writing a sentence and then thinking it's not good enough, writing a few words and then questioning whether they're the right words, you will never write anything. That's what I feel, at least. Or that's how I, I see some writers around me struggling who, who ask me for help. I remember years ago, I went to um, a school, an elementary school, maybe grade four, and uh, I was doing a seminar on story and writing. 
and I had the kids doing an activity, and things were just chaotic, like what you just said. Yeah. Kids were talking uh, and and laughing and wandering around, and, and and it was like this. And the teacher looked at me, and she goes, "Is it supposed to be like this?" <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Yes." Yeah. Yes. It should be. It it should. Being it's, being yeah. creative is fun. Being creative yeah. is the most fun that you can have. And when you're when you're in that space, when you're in that that uh, state of flow where you know it's different I think if you're with people or if you're on if you're on your own if you're in a group brainstorm situation people should be having fun they should be laughing they should be joking you should you should love what you're doing in those moments if you're on your own you should be able to forget about the world completely that's when you know you're doing great work is when you just forget about the world and nothing matters but whether or not the sentence it builds on the the next one and you're excited to see where those words go um and yeah it should be chaotic it should be wild it should be it should be fun that's yeah that's great and i remember when we were uh on the desert safari and you mentioned something about interactive poetry books i think that you were working on or that you'd done um mm. can you tell Tell me more about that. How, do, how does that work and how do you inspire others to tap into their creative selves? Well, I wrote a book called I'm Incomplete Without You, and uh, which, I, you know, in retrospect now sounds a little bit punny, I guess. Um, but it was about writing a series of um, poetic questions almost that would prompt the other person um, to to explore their creative side or to give them a platform to, to jump off of. And so, um, you know, if you were, if you were writing, you know, write the letter you, you, you didn't write to the person who left you, you know, or write something that doesn't matter and then set this page on fire (laughs) or, or, or just, you know, uh, those, those kinds of things, because, I think, you know, for some for some people, they've spent their whole lives afraid of being creative. And what they're really just missing is that first initial step. And if you give them that first step, if you give them that little prompt, they'll run with it and discover, actually, I can do this. And this this is a space that I'm comfortable in. Sometimes in the writing seminars I've done, I'll say to people, go ahead and write a story and I'll just sit down. And five minutes later, I'll say, what did you come up with? And half the people have nothing, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> and and so then I'll say, okay, so now in the next five minutes, I want you to write a story about a pickle that doesn't want to get eaten. And at the end <laughs> of the five minutes, everybody has a story. Yeah. Maybe, maybe the pickle was eaten or they escaped. It's comedic. It's dramatic, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody has their story. And when you just said that a, a moment ago about giving people that spark, that limit in a sense, that actually frees them up. And um, and so all of those stories were within these people, you know, 10 minutes earlier. It was just that they needed the limitation to actually set it free. It seems like a paradox uh, to me. Yeah. I think, you know, it's it, it, it is this whole this whole kind of thing we keep coming back to of, of being afraid, being afraid versus being brave with your with your creativity. I think one of the mistakes I see a lot of creative people make, especially professional creative people, actually, not just, you know, people who are just kind of moving into into the into the space, but they they think they are they are their work. 
And what I mean by that is as a creative person, your kind of sense of self kind of, it seems to depend a lot of the time on how successful your work is or isn't, which sounds obvious. It sounds obvious that if your book does really well, then you feel good. Or if it does really badly, you feel badly. Yeah. But for, for, but for creative people, it's something more almost where they are heavily invested in and they feel that any kind of criticism of what they do is a criticism of them. And mm. I've, I've, I've kind of, you know, gotten to a space in, in my creative life now where I separate the work from me. You know, the work is either good or it's bad or people like it or they don't like it. But ultimately, the act of making it was made me happy. And so that's that's what I hold on to. I hold on to that because if I get to wake up every day and make something, then that's the happiest life I can have as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's a difficult place to be in to get to the place where where you can say, OK, praise or criticism just bounces off from me. That's difficult. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it is. It is difficult. But. Do you know what? Like it's it's one of the things about poetry that I really, really hate. What you know, I've I've often said that poetry is the o- the only art form that's allowed to be really, really bad. And it's the reason <laughs> it's it's the reason why not a lot of people read poetry. Because a lot of poetry is just really bad. It's fun to write and anyone can write it, but a lot of it is bad. And it comes from this space where people are terrified of criticizing it. Because, you know, as we were saying earlier on in our conversation, it has this baggage of being nonfiction, this baggage of being an essential part of the person who who writes it. But, you know, it's 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 what's made it such an insular medium, such an insular kind of uh, space within the genre of literature. And I, I'm part of this kind of school of writers who have created for want of, of better words, a kind of accessible uh, genre of poetry. We write yeah. accessible, accessible poetry. No one needs to have a literature degree to understand the things that we write. That's, and yeah. which, which is really good. And I, I've said before to people, you know, in, in literature, you have Jonathan Franzen and you have Don DeLillo and you have all these other guys, but you also have James Patterson and you have Lee Child and you have Stephen King. And so why in poetry isn't there a James Patterson or a Lee Child or a Stephen King? Why isn't there something for the average person who works at Starbucks, you know, to why isn't there something they can put next to their cash register or for the soccer mom to have as a background on her iPhone or for because the average person wants and needs meaning in their life. And that's what poetry is, is, is for. I, um, I love how you put that because that's one of the questions that I was thinking of earlier is that when I was in, uh, in college, our professors would dissect poems and yeah. drain all of the impact out of it. And I remember one time saying to myself, you've, all you've left us with is a corpse of words. I, <laughs> <laughs> and that's a pretty good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I love how your poems are accessible to people. That's the whole point, I think, of it, is that when you need a literature degree to understand a poem, I think it's, it's lost. I, I don't know. I, for me, well, it's it, lost it a lot of a, impact. It becomes know? a very elitist 
thing. It becomes yeah. something that yeah. only a few people can enjoy. It becomes a kind of status symbol to go, well, you know, I actually, I really like poetry where yeah. it shouldn't be like that. It should yeah. be something that anyone can, you know, can, can find themselves themselves in. I remember uh, a few years ago, somebody from a school and I think it was in Alabama, they, they, they emailed me and they said, your, our teacher has just taught this poem of yours and I've looked you up on the internet and she says that your poem means this, you know, and she's kind of <laughs> extrapolated a, a whole bunch of things. And I, I went through the exact same experience you, you did uh, yeah. where, you know, I've had, I had teachers just dissect these things and say, this means this and this means this. And this kid said to me, did you actually mean any of this? And I wrote, no, <laughs> it was the best <laughs> feeling in the world. <laughs> And I really hope he printed it out and showed it to his teacher. Um, I love yeah, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Now, um, Ian, I found um, in Psychology Today a, an article that you would noted the importance of language and how you fell in love with it. Uh, so I, I thought I would just read that quote and then, you know, ask you to respond to it. I thought it was really insightful about your sort of your journey mm-hmm. of becoming becoming a poet. And and here's what they quoted you as saying, I fell in love with language before I fell in love with any specific poets. I recognized that there was a way to phrase words that made them more powerful. I loved movie taglines because they were a kind of poetry. They told this entire story in the space of a sentence or two. The whole of the movie Alien is summed up as in space, no one can hear you scream. I know that doesn't sound very poetic, or perhaps it is not very poetic, uh, a very poetic answer, but um, it was enough. It was it, actually, it was through being exposed to that kind of pop culture that I discovered my love of language. And just in this discussion about literature, elitism, and poetry, um, uh, what are your thoughts as you th- think back to that quote? Well, I, you know, it's true. I. I, I grew up reading comic books. Um, the closest I got to to literature was the the classics illustrated comic books. I don't know if you remember if you remember those or if you've ever seen those, but they're kind of like comic book versions of Hamlet or the Three Musketeers huh. or you know Two Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Um, but otherwise, it was comic books, and I would you know go to uh, the the video store with my, my folks and there'd be all these movie posters all around. And, you know, there was something so dramatic about the way these things were contextualized. And I guess in, you know, in not just in pop culture, but I guess what you might call commercial culture as well, like the kind of advertising that Nike does where they distill or they, or they change, you know, they could have just said this shoe will make you run faster but instead they said they, they they said just do it and there's something like those three words somehow are so powerful because of how understated they are and there's magic in that like you know we ignore it because it's an ad and no one wants to look at ads even the people who make ads don't want to look at ads but there 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 is there's a kind of genius and majesty in taking something so simple and finding a way to phrase it that that moves people and so, look, I think a lot of my poetry comes from um, from two places. The one is this very, this very kind of pop culture space. Um, the second is just the fact that I grew up in South Africa. You know, I grew up here in the, the 80s and uh, during apartheid. And 
at some point, you know, I got old enough to to have that moment where you kind of look around and go, oh, my God, we're the bad guys. Um, you know, they're, they're, this terrible thing has happened in our, in, our, in our country. And in some way, I have been a part of it. And so when apartheid ended, I looked at what I could draw from because I'm half Afrikaans and I'm half English. And there wasn't a lot that I was really proud of. And so I said, I don't want to write a book about an Afrikaans farm. I don't want to write poetry about being South African or about what's going on here. I would rather let go of that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write stuff that could apply to the universal condition in some way, which is, you know, I was talking earlier on about my project. I wrote this for you where I said I would never I would never use a gendered pronoun or refer to a place, a race or a location and just write stuff that was just universally true. And so in a way, I'm running you know, from that, from that history and from that past. And all this kind of pop and commercial culture has informed it and, and led me to where I am today. Well, I think that's a great segue into maybe letting you read one of uh, one of your poems here sure. today. I'd love to hear uh, to hear one. And like you mentioned, maybe the truth behind it, or at least the story behind why you wrote it, or or the impact that it had, you know, on your life, either before or after. But uh, yeah, let's hear let's hear one of your poems. Sure. So this one doesn't actually have a name yet. Um, it's something I've written about my kids, and as I've said, um, I'm writing a lot about them lately. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about where it comes from afterwards. It doesn't even, have, yeah, like I said, it doesn't have a name, so I'm just going to go straight into it. Before your children came, they were told that you would love them. So whatever you do, however you treat them, to them it is love. If you are cruel to them, they will think it is love. If you yell at them, they will think it is love. If you ignore them, they will think it is love. If you walk away from them, they will think it is love. If you are kind to them, they will think it is love. And if you are gentle with them, they will think it is love. And if you listen to them, they will think it is love. And if you hold them tightly, they will think it is love. Because we cannot point at anything that exists and say, this is love. So you will teach your children every day they are with you what it is. And one day when someone else treats them the way you treated them, they will say, this is love. So teach them well, no matter what you were taught yourself. Nice. You know, I mean, like I said, I write very accessible poetry, so I don't think it's a mystery as to where this this comes from. But in terms of my own personal experience, when you are... Um, a young parent, you make friends with other young parents. And it's very strange how you discover that almost everyone else has a very different parenting style to you. There are people mm. who are more disciplined than you, people who are a lot more apathetic than you, people who, you know, kind of run that entire spectrum. And I noticed that whatever anyone did, their kids just accepted as the way the world was. And so you realize like, you know, what you're doing is you're effectively teaching your children what what the feeling that they have with their parents is and the, what is natural and what is real. And it does speak, like you said, to a universal um, aspect of human nature, but it does so through specificity. I like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, like like I said, I'm writing about them a lot right now, and I I just have these moments with them, and it's, you know, I'll I'll read another one quickly, actually. Sure. And this yeah, is this yeah, is something please. else I'm dealing with. Again, these things don't have names; they're just kind of what I'm busy with right now. You are a parent, and you are an hourglass built to let go of the sand running through you when every part of you wants to hold on, and you try to hold on with pictures and notes. And telling yourself, you remember this. If nothing else, please, Lord, let me remember this. But the sand moves and it changes and it goes to school and it gets hurt and it becomes and becomes and becomes again. And you try to hold the sand tighter, even though you are built to let it go. And so that's that's from this place where I have a three-year-old now. She's going to be four in June and I'm desperately trying to remember what she was like when she was one and what she was like when she was two. And your mind just doesn't have space. space. And I take pictures every day with my phone and I film my kids and I, I try and hold on as best as I can. But this person that they become takes the, the space of the person they were. And, you know, it's just, but you try and hold on as best as you can because you know that these moments, these these experiences as tough as they are, I have a gut instinct that I will look back on them and know that they were probably some of the happiest moments of my life, you know? So, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And um, the idea of being a, an hourglass um, as, as a parent is brings to mind, you know, the, um, the brevity of the time that we have with our children and also the passing on, you know, toward, uh, toward the next generation. It's beautiful. I like that. Yeah. My, my parents, um, or at least my, my father and then my mother-in-law both passed away within about two years of our kids being born. Mm. And so that kind of that, that, that concept of that brevity is very much with, uh, my wife and I, where we're very aware that our parents won't get to meet our, our kids. And, it's it's a it's a strange thing where um we we understand that our time with them will last maybe 18 20 years but for when you're a kid as far as you understand that your family is forever and you have this sense of foreverness about about your experience and uh it's tough it's a very lopsided relationship um look as as you can hear like i'm thinking about it a lot and i'm writing about it a lot as well yeah that's fantastic um you know one thing that in fiction that uh, we really work a lot with is unmet desires tension that when you have a character who desires something and they can't get it that creates tension and tension is really the engine that drives every story now mm -hmm. when you write when you write your poems do you ever think of it in that ter in, the, in those terms of like either tension or unmet desire, or is it more of an aspect of really just opening your eyes and seeing what, uh, like what you said, training yourself to listen? How, does tension and, and unmet desire work into the, the poems that you work on it at all? I think it does, but I, I, I'm not quite sure how conscious of it I am when I'm when I'm writing. Yeah. I, you know, so my process is that I do a lot of listening. I gather all the all these different thoughts and these sentences and these phrases and these words. And uh, and then when I sit down for my work day, I have them all in front of me. 
and then I, you know, I start to extrapolate them and to, to try and build them into different things. And I can tell you that the things that don't have tension in them do not go anywhere. Hmm. The tension is either implied, whether it's a very inspiring poem, and I am implying that you are in a rough or tough time in your life right now. And so my poem is effectively the answer to that tension. Or perhaps it's a romantic poem about a broken heart. And that has an inherent tension in it where you miss the person you were with. Hmm. And so this this is how you're reaching out to them. The poem is the, is is your way of reaching out to them. And so it's always there. And I and I can tell you, yeah, if it doesn't have tension in it, then it won't get published and it won't go anywhere and it'll just kind of sit at the back until I can think of something to do with it. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Yeah. I remember reading that Robert Frost had once said, I've never started a poem whose ending I knew. Poetry is, um, I don't know, I'm not quoting exactly, but poetry is yeah. a matter of discovery. Um, is that similar in your experience, um, that as you write the poem, you discover its ending, or do you tend to start with the ending in mind? And as you write the poem, you find out the beginning. I, I, I don't think it's really set. I think you, you, you find either the start or the middle or the end, you find something you find yeah. a a word or a sentence and then for me if i'm if i'm really honest that one of the most important things is actually to write it as fast as possible so mm. the time between when the thought hits you because that's when it's at its most impactful the time between when the thought hits you and how long it takes you to actually take out your phone and, and write down in your notes app or pick up a pen or whatever you want to do the time, that time is incredibly important because you can't get it back. Mm. You can look at you can look at it again, and you can go. I kind of remember what I was feeling when I when I read this, but it's uh, the timing in many different senses in, in in poetry is incredibly important. And in the sense that I'm talking about right now, it's literally I have had this thought. I should be writing it down right now. I yeah. you know other, otherwise you get a lot of people who kind of walk around with all these different ideas and these thoughts and these, you know, I'm going to write this kind of a book one day and I'm going to write this kind of a poem. And the truth about the human mind is that it's a great place to have ideas and a terrible place to keep ideas. Huh, nice. You know, yeah, I like that. And you've got to get it out as fast as possible. It doesn't matter if you publish it. It doesn't matter if you do, if you do anything, but if you're walking around holding stuff in your head, you're besides the fact that it's losing potency, the entire time you're not writing it down, you're also not giving your mind the space it needs to come up with other ideas. Just again, it's this idea of being aware, listening, being tuning into life, and um, and seeing it with both eyes open. I I think those are those are great, you know, observations. So, Ian, tell us a little bit about your uh, most current project. Um, either something that you're working on or something that's become available so that people can check out some of your work. So my first book, which is the most famous one, is called I Wrote This For You. I've, I released last year my second major collection of poetry, which was called Every Word You Cannot Say. Um, that's available in good bookstores and on Amazon everywhere. Um, the two books are kind of... Uh, reactions to each other. I wrote this for you as a collection of black and white photography 
um, that I, I, I worked with a friend in Japan. He would he would walk around Japan and take a photograph every day and send it to me, and I would write a poem based on that photograph. And we've never mm. met. We've been doing this since 2007. So th- th- that's what that book is. And then Every Word You Cannot Say was a reaction to that, where I said, instead of doing all these very modular poems, I'm going to write one long poem. And so the entire book is a collection of illustration um, and poetry that kind of refers to itself. And both titles are kind of the truth of poetry because a good poem feels like it's written for you. And quite often for me, poetry is a kind of ultimate form of honesty. It's the things that you cannot say. For some reason, when we sit down to write poetry, we can say things that we could not say in everyday conversation. We can talk about very big subjects that otherwise would be impossible to talk about. And so every word you cannot say is is me tackling that idea. And then I am busy with another major collection of poetry. It doesn't have a name yet. Um, I it, it, There'll probably be some stuff about my kids in there. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. But right, right now, that one is very much about the aspect I, saw, I spoke to you about early on, which is about being recognized and being seen and being understood. And so that's the kind of lens I'm looking at it through. Um, yeah, that's, that, no, that's, that's fantastic. And uh, I, I think when we were off the air, you were also mentioning that a lot of your work is also available, you know, online. It's been quoted in different places. I don't know that we can track people down with tattoos to read your, <laughs> your, your tattooed work, but <laughs> But um, but I think that um, if we search for your name online, we may find some of that that's floating around out there. Sure. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and, and Facebook and, and everywhere else. You, you have to be these days to be an author. Um, and if you search Ian, I-A-I-N, um, Thomas, then I will pop up pretty much everywhere. And, you know, as I was saying off the air, I, I kind of give almost everything away for free. And then if people like my stuff, they can they can buy the book. That's fantastic. So as we as we wrap up, are there any other thoughts that you have for people either who think to themselves, I'm, you know, not not creative or I don't have anything important to say to the world? Uh, what, what are your thoughts when, you know, when people uh, do you have any closing thoughts regarding either of those observations? I think. We have a fundamental need to be creative. I think in the same way that we need diet, a good diet, and we need to exercise, we need enough sleep. I think we need to make room in our lives for creativity. I think people understand that, even if they don't consciously understand that. And the way I've put it before is that as we live our lives, we can hear these instructions from the universe. You you might you might call them something else. You might call them a um, a command from God. You 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 could call it whatever you want. But people have, and I speak to people, and I can pick this up when they talk about being creative or making a piece of art or um, or a painting or or whatever, and they don't, and it frustrates them. And I think our jobs are just to listen. Our our jobs are to listen to the people around us, to ourselves, and to those instructions, and to go out there and to make the beautiful things we will put you to make. And to step away from fear. 
Because it is the opposite (laughs) of creativity. Fantastic. Well, Ian, thanks so much for taking the time to be with me today. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I'd love for people to check out your books. I wrote this for you and every word uh, you cannot say, uh, and also to look for some of your other stuff. I know you have products online uh, where people can buy T-shirts and so on with some of your work. Um, and, uh, and I want them to connect with you online is the best place. Would you say Twitter or Instagram or sure, Facebook yeah. if, or any of those social Twitter is, social if platforms. you want me to reply to you, Twitter is probably the best. Well, check those out everyone. And, and for more information about the books that I've written, you can go to my website, stephenjames.net. Uh, for more information about our other guests and to check out other broadcasts, click to the storyblender.com. And uh, also the podcasts are available through iTunes and uh, Spotify and wherever you listen to your podcasts. So, so friends, thanks for listening. And always remember, the art of the poem is in the blend. We'll see you next time.